Well, good morning and welcome back. It's good to see everybody back again. Don't forget your pencils. We're going to be connecting more dots today. You weren't here for that yesterday. There's some extras floating around. So, And the story about this, I was recalling from my childhood in elementary school, we had big blue pencils that we wrote with. And I'm thinking, I want to find some of those. Well, I found something even bigger than that, it turns out. And I think it's true that you can find everything on Amazon, and those were on Amazon. And they really do write. That's kind of cool. So this morning, we're going to be covering two very strongly contrasting ideas. I was thinking on the way in this morning about how way back, probably in junior high school, somewhere around there, wherever we started to do critical analysis of someone's writing, one of the things that we would do is called comparison and contrast. You take two things, you compare them together to see how they're similar, but then you also look and see how are they different. It's a very simple technique and probably something that we we take for granted. We do it all the time because it's just become part of our way of thinking. And that's really what the morning sessions today are going to be about. There could hardly be a starker contrast, in fact, between what we're going to talk about in this first session on the dignity of man and what we're going to talk about in the next session, which is the depravity of man. And it's one of those things that if we don't think through it carefully, we could easily see it as potentially a conflict, that maybe the scripture is in conflict with itself in terms of how it describes man in these different ways. But whenever we find something that looks like a contradiction in scripture, we need to be careful because we're probably dealing with a paradox. And so I'm calling these two sessions the paradox of man, part one, his dignity, and part two, his depravity. So our concern in this first session is to establish the dignity of man, and specifically what was man in his original creation. Because as we saw last night, if we simply take the temperature of what's going on in church and in society, what do we discover? Things don't seem to be very good. What's gone wrong? We ask that kind of question. Well, the fall is going to be a big part of the answer of what has gone wrong. But we need to start where we started or where God started in creation, and that is with the dignity of man. Now, we we get this wrong in a lot of ways. Uh, those of us who were part of the pro-life work some years ago, why do we do that sort of thing? Why, why do we talk about this thing called the sanctity of human life? And it's because we're recognizing that there is inherent dignity in the human person. And where does that dignity come from? And it doesn't come from evolution, because if you start with an evolutionary worldview and work your way down, or I should say up, because evolution's all about going up, right? So we start with the slime, and we crawl out of the slime, and eventually we get better and better and better, and here we are today. But the problem with that worldview, among other things, besides being wrong, um, is that it doesn't explain why we should regard man as being any better 
than the slime we supposedly came out of. Nothing matters in that kind of a worldview. So we're really faced with that contrast in this first portion of this session. I want to talk about the the idea that man is either something or he's nothing. He's either something or it's nothing. It's one or the other. That modern man is a riddle to himself. Because we have the image of God, because we have the law of God written in our hearts, it's still in there even though it's distorted and suppressed, we understand inherently, because this is how God made us, that we have inherent dignity. We are not nothing. We are not slime. But unfortunately, we've been teaching generations of our children that we really are nothing but slime. We're evolved slime, and there's really no reason why we should think we're any better than the slime that we came from. So there's the contradiction, or one of the contradictions within that evolutionary idea of man. So man knows that he has value, but he depreciates that value. He doesn't appreciate what that value really is because it's not in terms of physical things, but it's in terms of spiritual things. And um, what man is inevitably doing in part of the chaos of our time is trying to find a substitute. We're going to talk a little later today about the problem of identity. Who are you? And think about how much of the confusion of our day is about people who are trying to grasp for an identity. And we even have this thing that we now call identity politics. We have to figure out what group we belong to, our identity and our value, then somehow determined by the association with that group. Now, if we reject man's spiritual nature, then we're going to look for some value or some worth in the physical nature. We have this idea today, the dominant idea of our time is called materialism. And what does that mean? It's basically the idea that everything is just stuff. It's just molecules in motion. There is material, but there's nothing spiritual either about us uh, as people or there's nothing, there's no spiritual world or spiritual realm. Everything is just what you see. And if that's the case, if we approach our evaluation of ourselves from that standpoint, then we end up with some kind uh, of evaluation along the lines of saying that we are the sum of our parts. Okay, So I can remember probably high school somewhere along the lines of uh, looking at the composition of the human body in terms of its elements and saying, if you break down the human body into its elements, here's what you get. You know, so much water, so much of this, so much of that, a little bit of carbon. And what's the the economic value of those elements? And the answer is not much. There's not much to it. But if we're just the sum of our parts, then we might end up with that kind of an approach. One that you typically will see more often, though, is the idea of what you do, the idea of being productive, the idea of contributing something to the society. And what does that mean, especially for young children and for the aged? That's a little scary because when we're brought into this world, we don't really do much of anything. 
we're a lot of time and a lot of trouble and a lot of cost before we get to that point where we start to produce and give something back. And then typically we will reach a point where we no longer contribute as much. So we talk about people who become, what, a burden on society. And we start to think in those kinds of pragmatic or utilitarian ways that when we get that get to that point, guess what? What do we start talking about at that point? What's been going on in Canada? Have you been noticing what's going on in the so-called healthcare system of Canada? I was reading, I saw it a couple different times just this week, headlines that say that, that uh, the Canadian uh, government is getting ready to pass a law making it legal to euthanize people who are drug addicts. So if you're a drug addict, instead of treating you for your drug addiction, we'll just kill you. That becomes the kind of alternative that we end up with when we devalue human life. And we'll talk more, of course, about the devaluation of human life that we see in abortion. It is literally genocide that's been going on in polite society for generations. Another way that we talk about the value of human life is in terms of, this is, it's a buzzword and it should scare you like the common good. This, this buzzword is quality of life. We'll say, oh, well, grandma doesn't have the quality of life that she had before. And we're going to make a value judgment about the, the, her life based on what quality we think it has in terms of her experience or especially in terms of her suffering. And we have a very distorted understanding of suffering and what to do about it. Killing people is not the answer. That's the short answer. <clears throat> we might value people in terms of things like their concerns, their moral hot buttons. What is it that gets them excited? What is it that gets them up in the morning? And, of course, we value in terms of associations. Uh, and that gets to the idea of groups and group identity. So the contrast is this. Either man has value individually or his value is going to be derived from some kind of a group association. And that should scare you a little bit because the biblical understanding of man and society is not collective. The problem is when you start associating with groups and then you look a little more closely, what do you discover about the groups? Well, it's not just one group because there are subgroups and some of those groups are more valuable than other parts of the group. And so there we go and we can easily go down the road of genocide because of that kind of idea. If we're in a group, if that's our association, then we can't expect to have equality in terms of our individual value. <clears throat> now, man has to have answers to the two big questions. Who am I? What is his identity? And what is my purpose? And the word that we use for that in philosophy is telos. What is the purpose of my existence? And because we are created in the image of God, we are we are always seeking after that. We want to understand who we are and why we are here. Those are some of the first kinds of philosophical questions that we ask. 
Now, materialistic philosophy, if that's what we're relying upon, has nothing in response to those questions except silence. And when materialism doesn't answer those questions, does man say, oh, I'm worth nothing, there's no reason for me to be here, never mind. No, it's not how it works. Uh, Our friend Calvin was famous for saying that man is homo religiosus. He's always religious in his way of thinking. And so in the absence of a materialistic explanation, we want to grab onto something else. And that something else that we grab onto ends up being some kind of mysticism. In other words, man says, and this is kind of a broad flow of philosophy from the Enlightenment rationalism, bringing us into um, existentialism, because when we went down the road of rationalism, we realized we're just part of the cosmic machinery and we have no value, and we don't like that answer. So we're going to take what Schaefer called the upstairs leap from rationality into mysticism so that we can latch onto some meaning. And so we make something up where nothing is there at the uh, end of the materialistic rainbow. <coughs> so this is what we could call the psychosis of man who is separated from God. He's willing to invent a lie so that his life has identity and purpose. And when you see the chaos around us, that's a big part of what's happening. Man is looking for an answer to those questions apart from God. Why is he trying to find answers apart from God? Well, again, the Bible tells us that man is very busy in his fallen nature trying to get as far away from God as he can. Contrary to what many say, no one is seeking after God. If anybody is doing any seeking, it's God who is seeking after a people that he can redeem. Now we come to this question, what is man? And it's one that I've kind of had to wrestle with over a fairly long period of time. We have, again, this Latin expression, if you're not in the Reformed community, then it might not be as familiar to you, but the Latin expression here is the imago dei, the image of God. What is the image of God? It's not that man is God. In fact, we we would have to say that God cannot create another God, that whatever God creates is necessarily, necessarily less than God, but there is something about man that is different. And we see that from the very beginning of Scripture, the verses that Bill read, that God says after having created everything else, he says, now let us make man in our image after our likeness. If you're looking for the chapter and verse that explains exactly what that means, I don't think there is one. But it's kind of like trying to answer the question of the Trinity. We have to use a variety of scriptures to understand more clearly what that is. So the precise meaning of the image of God is elusive, and I would say that it's elusive both in Scripture and in our confessions. If you think our Westminster Confession is going to give us a very 
nice cut and dried answer to the question. It doesn't. It does give us, I think, the, the important clues about what that is, but it's not going to answer the question fully. So my time this morning, I hope, will help to do that. I'll start by saying that man's dignity comes in part from his attributes and also in part from his dominion because we see that he's not just created to hang around and eat fruit. He's created to exercise some kind of dominion over this creation that God has made. Now, we talk in terms of what are called the communicable attributes of God. Again, it's a theological term. But what that means is that God has certain attributes as God, and some of those attributes he imparts to his creation. And I would say necessarily so. Okay, I'm going to take my pencil. I don't have a prop, but I can use my pencil to draw pictures. And the picture that I want to draw is the picture of a rock. Let's say I go out on a nice little hike up in Colorado, and I pick up a rock in the Rocky Mountains. I think that I think that's connected. Um, so we've got this rock, and I hold up the rock, and I say, here's a rock from the Rocky Mountains. And then I say, this rock proves the existence of God. This, this rock has at least one very important communicable attribute of God, and you're saying, huh? And then I'm going to say, yeah, it's ontological, don't you see? And you're saying, huh? The fact that it exists, because nothing, there's only one thing that exists, is pre-existent, and that's God and everything else. Its existence depends upon the one who is pre-existent. So the mere existence of the rock, in a certain sense, proves the existence of God, and it's a lot like what Paul says in the first chapter of Romans, that the knowledge of God is known through his creation. We can look at the rocks. We can look at the flowers, the streams, the birds, the stars, all of those things. The mere existence of those things reflects at least one of the important communicable attributes of God, and that is existence. Because if God did not exist, neither would the rock. So that's the idea. When we say communicable attributes, we're not talking about communication in terms of words, but a way of God taking some of his own attributes and placing that into what he's creating. So everything that exists has some communicable attributes of God, but there's something different about this Imago Dei, something special about it. How is it that man, that we can say that man contrary to human ideas, has infinite value. Now, we use that kind of language. We have that kind of biblical understanding. Man wants to assign value to man in terms of his parts, his pieces, what he's worth, those kinds of things. But if we say that man has infinite value, how is that possible? And the answer is because we have to take into account that man is not just material in his nature, but he's also spiritual in his nature. If we take a material standard, something like this, here's a pencil, we can measure this pencil in terms of its material value, and we'll have some material way of doing it. Uh, I could tell you, you know, I paid, I don't know, 
I think about $2 a piece for these pencils, something like that. So there's an exchange of money for this. I can put a monetary value on something like that. And that's about as far as it goes for something like a pencil. We can't do that with a person because a person has a spiritual nature. And someone with a spiritual nature has to be measured in terms of spiritual value, and nothing in the material world can do that. We could say it like this, that humanism or materialism does not provide an adequate reference point. Um, that man who is created by God is not nothing, he is something, and something quite valuable. Now, the Imago Dei, again, is not precisely defined, but we can understand it through the context of a number of passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll start by saying, first of all, that man is not God. Let's make that clear. But that he does reflect some characteristics of his creator. And because God is spirit and not physical, then that image cannot chiefly refer to physical attributes. It has to refer to abstract attributes, and it can be things like intellectual and moral character, things like purpose, and things, very importantly, like a a nature of relationship, the ability to be in relationship. And yet it's the case because man is the union of both body and soul, he nevertheless expresses many of those spiritual attributes through his physical attributes. Now, what I'm going to do next is define some of the boundaries. Again, I'll take my pencil and say, I've got this thing out here called the image of God, and I may have some difficulty telling you exactly what it is, but what I can do is I can start drawing some lines around it so we can at least see the outlines of it. And by doing that, we engage in a process called is, is not. It tells us, If we know what it's not, then we know what it is, and vice versa. Kind of the dichotomy idea. So some boundaries that we can draw around the Imago Dei. We can think in terms of what Adam was in his original creation before the fall. We could think in terms of what Adam lost in the fall. We can think in terms of what man retains after the fall. We can think in terms of how man differs from angels and from animals. We could also think in terms of what it is that man regains through his redemption. And then we can also learn something from what Christ is eternally, because the end of our salvation is to be what? It is to be conformed to that image of Christ. So those kinds of things help us start to draw some boundaries and begin to understand what it is and what it isn't. We can say that the Imago Dei is unique to man. Whatever it is, it's unique to man and to nothing else in creation, so that not even angels are made in God's image. There's something different between men and angels, and that's, again, an important clue. If we say, well... What is it like for angels? You know, they're spirit beings, they're, they're sentient, they're intelligent, they're all of those kinds of things, but they are not 
made in the image of God. They're never described in that way. We see, even from the order of creation in the book of Genesis, that the creation of man was God's crowning achievement, that it was last in order, and that makes it first in importance, and that by making man in the image of God, man is receiving a portion of God's communicable attributes. So he's not creating something that's equal to himself, but he can create man in a way that reflects some of his attributes. And there are a number of um, parts from the Westminster Confession that we can pick up here. One that's very important is in the 26th chapter and the third paragraph. And here's where the study of the Westminster Confession is helpful because just like as you study the Bible, you start to see how parts fit together, how the how the dots connect as we work our way through that confession in chapter 26, paragraph 3 tells us, referring to communion, that the communion which the saints have with Christ does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect. So whatever this thing is that's called communion, the communion of the saints in chapter 26, doesn't mean that man becomes God when man has communion with God. And that becomes an important clue as we think about what did man have at the beginning and what was it that he lost in the fall and what is it that is restored in redemption. And that communion is an important aspect of what it means to have our image restored after our Creator. Now, when we think of Adam, we talk of him in terms of being the head of the human race, the federal head, the representative of the human race, so that Adam is placed in the garden, he's given a law, he is basically put under the test, and it didn't, it didn't go so well. So Adam, as our representative, could have obeyed God's law, but did not. Now, here's where we have to confront some objections. You're going to say, or you don't want me to point to you, I'll say, I'll say, wait a minute, I didn't vote for Adam to be my representative. Or you might say, look, I didn't get a chance to try that myself. I wasn't given the opportunity to obey. If I had done that, then of course, I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Or, in a more American fashion, if we had more than one candidate that we could have voted for, we could have chosen another candidate and maybe he would have done better. But those kind of arguments fail. First of all, quite frankly, if it had been you, you'd have done the same thing. And even if it were the case that God had created, let's say, for the sake of argument, a hundred perfect men at the beginning and gave you the opportunity to vote for one of them, who would you vote for? If they're all perfect, then there's not one of them that has any advantage over any other. So in that way, Adam was created perfect, couldn't have been made better. He was the perfect representative 
for the human race. And if you don't like the fact that you have a, a representative in the fall, then you're probably going to have a problem with the gospel because that means we have a representative in redemption who does all that's required for our salvation. So Adam represents that whole human race. And part of what happens when we start thinking about that idea of federal headship and also when we come to the idea of salvation, one of the critiques that's always going to come up is that's not fair. We have this idea of fairness. We are trying to evaluate God's work in terms of our idea of fairness and then have to point out that whatever our idea of fairness is, it's coming out of a fallen heart. So it's probably wrong in some sense. So those are some of the objections and concerns that come up. I can't help summarizing uh, my thought here in this portion of the lecture by saying that we could compare the humanistic view of man as a soulless descendant of primates and without a meaningful difference from the rest of the biological world. If we embrace that evolutionary worldview, man has no soul and he has no value. And the reason man has no value is because nothing has any value. You get that, right? If nothing has any value, then man has any value either. And any assignment of value is completely arbitrary at that point. It's purely imaginary. Now, part of the passage that Bill read includes the statement that God made man. I know this is not a popular view these days, that God made man male and female. There's obviously a complementary difference. And for us to try to deny maleness and femaleness of man is to believe what is contrary to nature and also contrary to God's design. We notice, for example, that in the first chapter of Romans, Paul even uses a little bit of a naturalistic argument when he says that we are in a time where people are abandoning the natural use. Meaning what? Well, it's obvious that men and women are designed for one another, not men for men and women for women. So even nature tells us these things. Now, in a biblical worldview, it must be the case that purpose precedes design. Purpose precedes design. God has a purpose in his mind, and the design is going to be in accord with the purpose. So the design will then fulfill the purpose that we began with. But, of course, in evolution, there is no purpose. Everything is completely random. So it must be the case that that's reversed in a humanistic view that purpose follows design. And here I have to use design very loosely because nature doesn't design anything in terms of it having a prior idea. It just happens... And if that's the case, then something's only going to have value by virtue of finding some useful purpose for it. So here we are back to things like pragmatism. What can I do with it? What can I get out of it? Or utilitarianism. 
When does it have value? When should I keep something or when should I discard it? Now, it's pretty obvious. I'll admit I'm not a biologist, but I am a scientist. I did take a biology class in high school, and I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express many times, so I'm going to say this with some conviction, that there are only two sexes and that there is no reproduction without the male and the female of each species, and that that includes man. That's the only way it works. That's the way it was from the beginning. That's certainly the way it was when Noah prepared an ark and God brought the animals two by two, male and female, a male and his mate, so that what? So that the earth could be replenished after the flood. Now, here's something that we cannot grasp by a naturalistic explanation. So hang on. What we call gender identity, and I'm borrowing the term just so I can make the point, gender identity goes to the soul. We are made male and female in body and spirit. It's not just, here's a body, here's a spirit, let's put them together. You know, sometimes we get a match and sometimes we don't, so that you have those who will say, what? What's the argument? I was born in the wrong body. I'm a woman that was born into a man's body or a man that was born into a woman's body. Which is interesting because it almost implies that there's a soul. And in fact, there is. But the soul and the body are perfectly matched from creation. And I hate to tell you this, but all the way to eternity. Okay? Now, how do we know this? Once, uh, one way is that when the soul departs the body at death, the soul retains its identity. Whatever you are right now, you will be after death in spirit. You'll still be male. You'll still be female. You'll still have your personal identity as well. Another is that when the soul is rejoined to the resurrection body... It's going to retain that same sex identity for eternity. In other words, just as it was created by God. And if it's possible for someone to be misgendered, then he will unfortunately remain misgendered for all of eternity. There's no way to fix that if that's actually what happens. Now, it's not. Now, part of what is different about Christianity than about some other religions, is that we have this idea of the uniqueness. There is a correspondence between body and spirit from the moment of conception. That as soon as there is a conception, God unites a soul to that physical body. Life is defined according to the union of body and spirit, just as it was at the beginning when God breathed into Adam's body the breath of life and he became a living being. So there's that beginning of life, the joining of body and soul, and the end of life is defined in terms of what? The separation of body and soul. It's not necessarily, it doesn't always, I'll put it this way, it doesn't always necessarily correspond with some physical change. Okay, As long as the body and the soul are together, Biblically, that's the definition 
of life. Now, when that separation occurs, what happens? The spirit returns to the God who gave it. The body goes into the ground like a seed, awaiting what? The resurrection. Now, our confession is very explicit. It uses this word, self-same, referring to the resurrection body, that the body that you are attached to right now is the same body that you will be reattached to in the resurrection, but it will have a different form, a different characteristic at that time specifically. And again, this is mysterious. Rather than being the corruptible body that you now inhabit, it will be incorruptible, but it will be the self-same body. Now, what does that doctrine preclude? It precludes any idea of reincarnation. Any idea of reincarnation, whether human or animal. Nobody comes back. There's, there's nobody from a prior life who's occupying your body now. Or your soul is not going to depart and go occupy somebody else's body at another point in time. All of that disappears. There's a one-to-one, a perfect one-to-one correspondence between every body and every spirit. And that's forever, even though death will separate the body from the spirit until the resurrection. It's funny how something as simple as that clears up a lot of confusion. Now, man is not a more sophisticated animal. If you're operating from an evolutionary worldview, you know, everything is, is up. Man is, I like to say, man is on the up escalator, getting better and better. He started out as slime, but then he grew some legs. He started to walk. Later on, he started to talk. Then he stood upright and, you know, started using clubs and then graduated to more sophisticated instruments. So man is going up and up and up. And you have to understand how much of our confusion has to do with that idea that we are not being, as in being human, we're becoming something, that we're on our way to being something else. So everything that has to do with the so-called uh, trans movement is the idea of essentially rejecting what it means to be human, made in the image of God, male and female, and trying to become something else, whether it's something else in a human form or whether it's what we would consider some higher kind of creature. That answers a lot of the confusion. Now, the humanist, and if you've ever read the humanist manifestos, I wouldn't recommend reading them after a big meal, but they are interesting. The humanists absurdly declare that science has somehow or another proved that man does not have a soul. Now, what is that doing to the dignity of man as he was created? It's turning him into essentially another animal. And again, why should man have any dignity at all, or why should he have any more dignity than, I don't know, a house plant, if he has no soul, he has no spiritual, he has no spiritual existence. <clears throat> so it's not surprising that we see both a depreciation of human rights on the one hand, and what? An elevation of, and I have to put these in quotes, animal rights 
on the other hand. That's part of what's being used to push the agenda for stopping those of us who are carnivores from eating meat. Um, Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, meat is murder. Um, Well, I can't go into the false logic there, but, uh, you know, if it fits on a bumper sticker, I guess it makes a point. That's the idea, that there's no difference. Well, again, we're caught in the tension between saying that man has some value and he doesn't have any value or doesn't have any value in comparison to anything else. Now, if that were true, and here's where I'm going to poke a little bit of fun, if all things have equal rights, all living things have equal rights, uh, including plants, then even the vegan is stuck in a dilemma because the best I can determine, every animal depends on some other living form uh, of some other form of life or food, whether it's plant or animal. How can the vegan say it's okay to eat plants, but it's not okay to eat animals? Doesn't life all have equal value? Well, in that case, we're just going to sit and starve to death, I guess. Uh, we don't have answers to those kinds of questions. Scripture uniformly describes man as more valuable than all the rest of creation, whereas fallen man ends up having to describe himself as meaningless. The humanistic worldview cannot make ultimate distinctions, and it can't make value judgments. And even all the breathless moralizing about we have to save the environment, why should we care in a humanistic worldview? And my point is not to forget about environmentalism or stewardship. My point is that if you adhere to a humanistic worldview, you have no reason to care about anything. The earth is just a rock. And so what if it has some slime on it? Or if not, so what? It doesn't matter. Nothing matters in that worldview. If we have a Christian worldview, we understand the idea of stewardship. We understand the idea of dominion. God placed us here to exercise dominion over this world, to inhabit it, to fill it, to subdue it, and in doing those things, to bring glory to him as the ultimate creator. So we have purpose to those kinds of things with a Christian worldview, whereas we're always high and dry if we abandon that Christian worldview. It's part of the law of God written in the heart that man must grasp his own identity. But after the fall... He's grasping for an identity that always falls short because it fails to account for his spiritual nature. And here's the key, his need for a relationship with God. Now, what happens if we abandon the sanctity of life ethic? Well, life has no intrinsic value. It only has value that we assign to it. And as I mentioned earlier, if we don't have the sanctity of life ethic, We end up with something like the quality of life ethic or perhaps the cost of life ethic. And inevitably, that means assigning different values to different lives. We need to notice that the Christian understanding of man is radically egalitarian, that all people have infinite value, no matter how young, no matter how old, No matter how rich or how poor, no matter how well-educated or how uneducated, 
whether you're a ditch digger or whether you're a CEO, no matter what you do or no matter what your capacity is, you have intrinsic value. And apart from that understanding of man made in the image of God, you're just grasping for straws. And you end up grasping for some very bad straws. If it's the case that human life doesn't have any intrinsic value, then it frankly doesn't matter what we do to other people, no matter what we breathlessly moralize about. It doesn't matter. We need a Christian worldview to give proper understanding to the value of human life and to uh, our, our treatment of one another. I think there's a law about that, isn't there? Something about love your neighbor as yourself. Whereas in the humanistic view, it's grab whatever gusto you can. Do whatever you want. You're free. Now, lastly, I want to mention that this is also a consequence of the Imago Dei, and I'm adding this because of the fact that it's one of those hot-button issues today. We need to be reminded that there was one man and one woman at the beginning of creation and that all of us descend from that man and woman. What does that imply about this thing we called race? Uh, It implies that there's one race called the human race. That's what it implies. Not that we have this race or this culture and then we start creating divisions where, um, humanly speaking, we are all one blood, as the scripture says. It seems ironic that those who claim that gender, male and female, that that's a social construct, are failing to notice that their concept of race is actually a social construct. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make gender more like skin color that has an infinity of varieties. And even if you don't have a certain skin color, you can always just identify yourself as having that particular skin color. Now that unfortunately fits into the Marxist uh, idea of class conflict. And we begin to suspect that that's the agenda behind uh, dividing people in these kinds of ways. And unfortunately, and if we haven't noticed this, we should, that there is no end game to that conflict. So we need Christianity to explain our differences, such as differences in class and culture and language. We need Christianity to explain our struggles, that is, our sin and our selfishness and why we have conflicts and disagreements. And then we also need Christianity, and specifically the gospel, to resolve our conflicts, to have true reconciliation. And if you haven't noticed it already, there is no end game of reconciliation in the cultural Marxist narrative. It's simply constant conflict. Christianity gives us the answers. We will conclude our session there, and then in the next one, pick up with part two, the depravity of man by grace alone because man 
has made himself incapable of salvation. So we talked a little about the Imago Dei in the last session, and really we just kind of outlined it a little bit. Hang on to your pencils, we'll keep using those. We wanted to outline it a little bit and bring us to this point where we can now talk about what is the image of God after the fall. Because we might go too far in thinking that the image of God is completely lost in the fall, and that would be incorrect. Now, as Mark alluded to in the, uh, in the verses, Adam's sin, and if we're evaluating, of course, from our objective and unbiased point of view, we would say well, it seems like a very little sin. I don't know why that seems like such a big deal. How could such a small thing bring such ruin and devastation upon the whole creation? And Mark touched upon the answer by saying that it was pride. The original pride, or the original pride that brought the original fall was Satan's pride and rebelling against God in heaven. That's how that serpent ended up in the garden having this conversation in the first place. Now, the verses from Genesis 6 are the pronouncement of judgment that God makes against the world as he's preparing to bring the flood against the world. And they're helpful for us today as well because they give us an idea of what condition the world was in. Now, you might notice something if you read through those chapters 6 through 8 or into chapter 9, the narrative of the flood. A funny thing is uh, that you notice that what God says about man after the flood sounds just like what he said about man before the flood. And even though all of mankind has been wiped out at this point, except for Noah and his family, the judgment remains. The effects of sin still remains. That all of man's thoughts are only evil from his youth. So the language is almost identical after the flood as it is before the flood. And it's a reminder that the flood did not fix man's spiritual problem. It's pointing to a judgment, but it's also pointing to a deliverance, and it represents one of the most important Old Testament types for the person of Christ. But this is the judgment, and this has been the judgment since the fall, that the wickedness of man is great and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now notice the contrast between the fifth verse and the eleventh and the twelfth verse. Here are the the dots that I want you to connect. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart and the actions. In other words, evil actions don't start with evil actions, they start with evil desires. That what we're seeing even in these early chapters of Genesis is that what is corrupt about man is in his will. He wants to do evil, and so he does evil as opportunity presents itself. And something that I'm convinced made that world particularly violent before the flood is that there was no death penalty for murder at that point. If you go back and look at the narrative of chapter 4, the first murderer was 
Cain. And then a few generations later, we read about another murderer, one of his descendants named Lamech, who kills a man just for offending him and basically says, God's not going to do anything about that. Nobody's going to hurt me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then I'll be avenged 77 times. Now there's boasting, the idea that no one can hold him accountable for his murders. And so I think that certainly must have contributed to the violence of that world before the flood. And it's not until chapter 9 where God institutes the death penalty for murder. And that's an important clue as it bears on this session. Now, the particular command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil should have been an easy test for Adam. We we realize that Adam and Eve had an unrestricted food supply. They were placed in a garden with every kind of fruit tree, and they were told they could eat freely of any of the trees of the garden except for that one of which they must not eat of it. Something I want us to notice here is that that tree of knowledge of good and evil was a test of trust. And that from the beginning, God is setting limits on both the knowledge of man, what he can know, and his authority. So that tree represents more than just, here's a tree, don't bother that one. It's very significant spiritually. And Adam's sin is egregious. It's been said that the only reason that they possibly could have had for breaking God's command is simply their willful defiance. In other words, it wasn't because, like when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, he was hungry. Adam and Eve weren't hungry. They had everything they could possibly need or want. But they wanted something they were told was not theirs. Now, does man still have that imprint of God, the Imago Dei, after the fall? And if so, how do we know that? I've kind of given the answer away already. Take a look at the ninth chapter of Genesis. I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 9 because it would be hard to try to take those verses apart. They all fit together so so tightly. This is right after the flood now. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, especially cows. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow men I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply team on the earth and multiply in it. Now, how does that verse answer our question? What is man after the fall? Is the image of God still there? It must be. Has it been damaged? Has it been marked, as it were? Deformed or defaced? Yes, but it's still there. So even man in his fallen condition maintains enough of the image of God for us to still value his life above every other form of life. Notice that. Notice how animals and men are treated differently in those few verses. Notice how the death penalty is even applied to the animal. And we'll see that later on in the Law of Moses, that if an ox gores a man, then the ox is killed. That whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood be shed, whether beast or man, because man is made in the image of God. He still maintains that imago dei even after the fall. So it may be severely damaged, but it's not completely destroyed by the fall. The Imago Dei has profound implications for all of life, as we've said. It gives us the basis for the sanctity of human life, that human life, even after the fall, has inherent value and meaning. And I would even put it like this, that the seriousness of murder is that it's an attack against God by proxy. Why is it such a serious thing? Because there's enough of the image of God in man that when one man kills another man, it's as if he's trying to kill God. And where do we first see that? The answer is always in Genesis. When Cain kills his brother Abel, why did Cain kill Abel? Because God approved Abel's offering but did not approve Cain's offering. And so Cain was angry at his brother because God had, I mean, God had favor on Abel and not on him. So Cain can't get God, but he can get his brother easily enough. So we see that from the very beginning, that attacking another human being is a form of attacking God by proxy. Why is it that Christians are persecuted? Because we bear the image of Christ. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Right, And what is the persecution of Christ? It's obviously an attack against God. We can see it perhaps most clearly in the person of Christ who was hated so much. And the funny part is he was hated by the religious establishment. He was hated so much that he was killed. So we see that idea. Murder is the attack against the image of God and it becomes an attack against God by proxy. And that is part of what makes it such a serious sin. Now, in our fallenness, we who bear the image of God are determined to make some kind of a visible image of the invisible God. And that becomes a violation of the second commandment, by the way. As if God could be represented by one of his own creatures. And one of the reasons why we in the Reformed community are particularly adamant against 
images is because you cannot represent the invisible God with some likeness of something in his creation. You're, you're confusing the distinction between the creator and his creation if you try to make something in uh, the image of God. You can't do it. Now, ultimately, we want to be our own little gods. That goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the first temptation. That when you eat of the fruit, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. So the funny thing is, even though we like to make physical images and idols, really what we're doing is we're making, making some kind of a representation of ourself because it's a God of our own imagination. Now, recently in the news, because of the conflict in the Middle East, we have been hearing reports of barbaric murder of infants, Israeli infants, by Hamas. The part that I heard, and there may be details that I haven't heard, was that at least 40 infants were beheaded by Hamas. And we hear something like that, and what is our gut reaction? It should be repulsion, right? It should be, it should in some sense make us angry to think about that. But why is that ironic? Why do we look at something like that and say, that's barbaric? We shouldn't treat children like that. No one should treat anyone else's children like that. But are we forgetting what goes on every day? Is killing children more acceptable if we're doing it in a medical clinic than rather than in the streets? And that exposes part of the inconsistency that we have. If we were to take the vicious slaughter of children and simply call it by another name like abortion, does that make it okay? Does that excuse it? And at the risk of offending someone's sensibilities, I I find myself compelled to ask the question, is decapitating an infant any more barbaric than dismembering an infant in the womb and calling it health care? And I don't think, obviously, the answer is no. Out of curiosity, by the way, I knew that abortion was fairly common in Israel. So I wanted to see if I could find at least a ballpark figure. And it's apparently the case that at least 20,000 Israeli babies are aborted on an annual basis, and that has been the case for many years. So again, where's our moral indignation? Is it against the 40 that Hamas killed, or is it against the 20,000 Israeli children that they killed themselves in the womb? Where do we draw the line? Now, when we think about what exactly happened in the fall, the Bible speaks in terms of man's spiritual death, okay? That man's fall brought both spiritual and physical death. 
Physical death, easy enough for us to see. Now, it was uh, a delayed death penalty in the case of Adam and Eve, but they did die, didn't they? In fact, Genesis 5, just before the flood, is a recitation of the generations from Adam down to Noah. And what is the recurring theme in Genesis chapter 5? And they died. And they died. Everyone died. And who died in the flood, by the way? Everybody else. There's your primordial death penalty. God applied the death penalty himself to that world. And of course, Noah, even though he lived for 350 years after the flood, he also died. And his sons died. And their children died. And so there's a universality of death that came as a result of sin. A physical death is easy enough to get. The question is, what is meant by spiritual death? And the way we can understand it is like this, that when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, it wasn't just that God gave Adam a spirit so that he became a living being, a combination of body and spirit. There was a connection or a communion between them as well, that there is already that spiritual connection between the Creator and man, and that that is what is lost when Adam sinned, that that connection that he had to God spiritually was broken. That doesn't mean that his soul died. He still has body and he still has a soul, but the connection, the spiritual connection between Adam and his creator was lost in the fall. And part of how we see that is in the restoration of it through redemption and that idea that we picked up on the last session. What does it mean to have communion with God? We are not part of the Godhead. We're not little gods. But there's a spiritual connection that is restored at the time of our regeneration. And I'm convinced that that is what is the essential aspect of the Imago Dei, that man is made to be in spiritual communion with his creator, that that spiritual connection was broken by his disobedience, and that is the work of Christ and the Spirit in restoring that and then perfecting it in salvation. So man is still physically alive after the fall, And he still has a soul, but that soul has been severed from God now. And all of man's efforts now at trying to find meaning apart from God because he's now been severed from God spiritually is futile. And we need to also understand that it's not man's effort that can restore that lost connection. Salvation is not merely a matter of saying, here's grace if you want it, take it. Salvation has to restore the spiritual bond that was lost. And nothing that man can do can accomplish that. It has to be a work of God. Augustine famously said in one of his uh, confessional statements in prayer, saying to God that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. 
we are searching desperately for the meaning that we can't find apart from God. Now, last time we talked a little about federal headship. And what that means in terms of the fall is that, as Paul says, as in Adam, all die. Don't want to say it, right? As in Adam, all die. Adam's sin is passed to all of humanity. As we see from the passages in Genesis, fallen man is only inclined to sin continually. And the process of restoring man is that regeneration, what we call regeneration, frees man from the power of sin so that it does not have dominion over him and over his affections, and that glorification frees man ultimately from the presence of sin. And we'll talk more about those things as we go. Now, in thinking about what's happening in society, it can be instructive to look at some perhaps non-Christian or quasi-Christian sources or explanations. Uh, One of my favorite commentators is someone named Theodore Dalrymple, who as a physician is a very keen observer of human behavior and the consequences of people's choices. But he's not a Christian. And so he can describe what he's seeing as he's interacting with patients, but he can't explain it. And that's where we have to be careful. We can we can describe, and many secular people can describe what we're seeing, or we can describe it in secular terms, but it doesn't give us the answer. Now, something that is becoming apparently a little more popular is something called the Cluster B Society. Now, if there's a doctor in the room who's done a psych rotation, he probably knows what I'm referring to because it's actually a medical term. There's a a conservative writer named Christopher Rufo who says this. It kind of captures what we're trying to think about this weekend. He says, There's a creeping sense that our society has turned upside down. Healthy debate is replaced by activist hysterics. Speech is declared violence. Violence is excused as speech. Masculinity is condemned as toxic while men in dresses are celebrated in the public square. It feels as if we're in the midst of a society-wide mental breakdown. He goes on to say that if we're to find a way out, we must understand the peculiar logic and rationality of the Cluster B society. We must learn how to counter emotional falsification and how to say no with a renewed voice of authority. We must find a way to restore balance, order, discipline, and sanity. If we do not, we will resign ourselves to a world gone mad. Sounds like a good theme for a conference, doesn't it? That's what we're seeing. He's describing what we're seeing. And specifically, what's called Cluster B is characterized by four specific personality disorders. See if this rings a bell. Narcissistic personality disorder. Histrionic personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder. And antisocial personality disorder. Now again, that's helpful from a descriptive standpoint. It's 
pretty accurate. We're dealing with a lot of those kinds of things. And especially in recent years, I'd be willing to bet that like me, you have found it more and more difficult to have conversations with friends and family that maybe a few years ago you could sit down and have a discussion and have a disagreement, but everybody can walk away happy even if you don't come to an agreement. But these days, now any kind of disagreement is suddenly treated as, well, a mental disorder. There must be something wrong with you. How can you think that or how can you say that? We're dealing with, it's like everyone is on a on an emotional overload at this point. And so we're reacting out of, uh, you know, an overactive uh, emotional response rather than being able to sit down and think through and discuss things the way we used to do in bygone days. Helpful is a description, but it doesn't tell us how to solve that problem, does it? I'm not suggesting that we should turn to the secular psychologist to help us solve these personality disorders or that maybe it just means putting everyone on the right kind of antipsychotic. We're dealing with a real problem, but it's a spiritual problem. And again, materialistic man is going to look for some kind of materialistic explanation and some kind of materialistic solution. The church is the only place that has the answer, and it's the gospel. <clears throat> now, the idea of man's depravity is frankly offensive to depraved man. He doesn't want to be told that he's actually not very good. In fact, he's really, really bad. There are many texts that I could quote at this point. We could stop with the passages that Mark read to us out of Genesis 6. That ought to be enough. That captures the idea of man's depravity, that all of his affections and all of his actions come out of a heart that is fallen, that is bent toward evil. So I'll refer you back to that. Interestingly, the Psalms contain lots and lots of passages about the depravity of man. And I'll come to that in a minute because uh, there's a guy named Paul who quotes a few times from the Psalms in making a very strong case for the universal guilt of fallen man. Uh, another Old Testament passage is the 59th chapter of Isaiah. If you want to take a look at that later, you probably know the verse from Jeremiah 17:9 that says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. We have passages like that both in the Old and the New Testament, but I'm going to focus on a few from the New Testament just to drive home the point and drive it home pretty hard. First, I'll quote from the first chapter of Romans, starting in verse 28, where Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of, and here it comes, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Just a couple of chapters later in Romans 3. In Romans 1, Paul is making the case to the Gentiles. The Gentile world is under sin. But Paul says, are we Jews any better off? Nope. And then what does he do? He starts quoting from Scripture and saying to the Jews, as it is written, in other words, this is in your Bible, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in that passage, Paul is quoting from Psalm 5, verse 9, from Psalm 10, verse 7, from Psalm 14, the first three verses, the first verse of Psalm 36, from the third verse of Psalm 140, from Proverbs 1.16, from Proverbs 3.15 to 17, and from Isaiah 59.7 and 8. Just to kind of give us a recap of what the Old Testament scriptures say about sin. Now Paul comes back to this kind of theme over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 where he says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 4, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Some of you are starting to pick up on a pattern. Colossians 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's that image idea again. Paul says this 
in his second letter to Timothy chapter 3, warning about the end times for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. In James, the fourth chapter of his epistle, he raises this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm not done yet. I'm going to go forward to the book of Revelation and pick up a couple of passages from the book of Revelation because it helps illustrate the hardness of the heart after the fall. In the ninth chapter of Revelation, verses 20 and 21, It says that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And then from Revelation 16, three verses, 9, 11, and 21 where it says they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. That in spite of all the plagues and sufferings that God is bringing upon people in these last days, All it does is make them mad. You want to know one of the reasons why hell is forever? Because the unregenerate man never repents. He just continues to rage against God and continues to heap up wrath to himself by his disobedience. This is the picture of fallen man. This is an awful picture. At this point, we could start asking, what's it going to take to fix a problem like this? It's not going to be psychotherapy. It's not going to be a pill. That even when the wrath of God is poured out against mankind, without the grace of God, no one repents. And they don't repent because they don't want to. And they don't want to because they are fallen. And not just fallen, meaning wounded, but radically fallen, meaning 
at enmity with God, against everything that is God. That's the picture of fallen man. This is man in his depravity. And the only thing that restrains us from being the worst that we can be is what's called common grace. What we see in the first chapter of Romans, as man continues to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness, trying everything he can to put the knowledge of God out of his sight and out of his mind, what does God do? It says God gives him over to his sin. And that's what Scripture describes as the hardening of the heart. We see that at the Exodus with the plagues that God brings against Egypt. And what does it say in every case, every plague? What is Pharaoh's response? Oh, I see. Your God is the God of the universe. Sure, go ahead, leave. Nope. It says he hardened his heart. He continued to harden his heart. It's the same picture that we see from those verses in Revelation. Even the severest plague does not turn the the heart of repentance apart from God's grace. Now, our recent events, recent wars, and some of the headlines that it produces, as I think most of us in this room remember the events of 9-11, we look at those kinds of events and we say, how could somebody do that? We're shocked by the kind of barbarism that we see. Why? Because the Bible gives us the picture of man in his fallenness. Those kinds of things force us back to the question of whether man is basically good or whether he's basically bad. And frankly, even if we say that he's basically good, we're still admitting that there must be something wrong with him because we like to add very quickly as a cover for ourselves that, hey, nobody's perfect. Why not? And unfortunately, we have pictures and glimpses throughout scriptures, even of good men demonstrating that they have capacity for unimaginable evil. David's adultery and his conspiracy and his murder is an example of that. Sin has to be restrained by God's Spirit. Maybe one of the reasons why we are shocked by these atrocities is because it gives us a glimpse into our own hearts. We're looking into a mirror, but we don't want to admit it. Now, of course, pundits and talking heads will grasp for explanations for the hatred and the violence, but they can never do more than just describe what they see. And all their explanations and any of their proposed solutions are based on a false worldview. Maybe this is part of what you've encountered or thought with your own friends and family, you're sitting down and saying, well, let's just, we can just sit down and talk out our differences. Mm, no, I, I don't think you're really going to, you know, you, you might figure out how to sort of live at peace with each other for a while, but there's always going to be that underlying tension. There's only one thing that can solve the conflicts between men, and that is the gospel. 
There's nothing new about men's depravity, even the atrocities that we hear about in the Middle East and the headlines today. I want to quote from you a short passage from 2 Kings chapter 8, where Hazael, who is about to assassinate the king of Syria and take his place, is saying to the prophet, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. There's nothing new about that. The problem is thinking, because of our humanistic worldview, that as time goes by, man gets better. He's always getting better and better. He's on the up escalator. No, he's not. Spiritual problem is the same, and the outworking of that spiritual problem is the same. Hatred and violence. Now, it's not only that we have difficulty failing to acknowledge the wickedness of mankind, but also, we should recognize the hand of God's judgment in events like these. We can see that most clearly in the historical narratives as God is bringing judgment against the nations and against His own people. But we shouldn't dismiss the idea that God is continuing to work in that same kind of way. Now, death itself, death of the body, is the manifest evidence of man's depravity. If you say, well, I'm... I'm not that bad. Well, are you going to live forever? And if you say, well, no, I'm sure I'm going to die. Well, that's the proof, frankly, that you are as well part of fallen humanity. All die because all sin. Scripture clearly tells us that death is the wages of sin. In other words, it's what you earn by your disobedience. And Adam's fall is universal. It places all men under the judgment of God unless God intervenes with his sovereign grace. I would put it like this in an effort to be a little humorous about the situation that if man were basically good, he would basically live forever. But he doesn't live forever. And it means there is something wrong. Now, how does man's fallenness affect what we like to call man's free will? That's where we're going in our discussion as we continue uh, to look at these things after lunch. We need to think about what is the difference between the biblical doctrine of man's free will and the popular belief about man's free will. Is man's will ever completely free? And if not then what is it that constrains man's will? And I'll point out to you the obvious that death is one of those things. You can't keep yourself alive. So maybe your will is not as free as you would like to think. Will comes down to the inclinations of the heart, and the problem is that the fallen heart is inclined to do evil. And that is where the problem lies. If man is indeed free in his will, then we could ask this question, why, do you, why does he continue to sin even after he's saved? Why do even Christians need to hear the gospel? Because that sinful 
nature has not been completely eliminated. The verdict is pretty grim. This is just a sampling of some of what Scripture has to say about the condition of man after the fall. And yet it's the case, again, as Scripture teaches us, the paradox of man is that even in his remarkable depravity, he still has value as a creature made in the image of God. And we will see as the narrative continues to unfold that it is salvation by God's grace that restores man to what he was at the beginning. So we'll conclude there, and it will be shortly time for us to join together for lunch.